we really lack user-centered design in healthcare. You know, you go into any healthcare system, you realize we, we do not focus on patients as the user or even clinicians. They're not very user-centered design friendly for clinicians either. Fundamentally, our business model for healthcare is really flawed. That creates a, kind of a real um, conflict between patients, their clinicians, and the people who are paying the bills, the insurance companies. You know, it's sort of a zero sum. If the insurance company pays the doctor, they make less money. If the doctor doesn't get paid, they make less money. So there's kind of a tension. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. What is the promise of Precision Health? It was almost the title of this podcast because our guest today, Vivian Lee, answered that question every day through her work at Verily Life Sciences. As president of health platforms, C creates healthcare systems that work with their patients' unique lives. Vivian has also done similar work with the University of Utah Healthcare as the CEO and the dean of their medical school. Under her tenure, the University of Utah was ranked first across the country in quality and safety. Vivian also sits on the board of directors of the Commonwealth Fund and the board of trustees of Boston Children's Hospital. She is an expert in our healthcare system and has a lot of important things to say about the healthcare of the future. Here's our conversation. Well, thank you, Vivian, for joining me today. I'm so excited to have you. Um, I think for the context for our listener, it would be great to for you to share with us your story, your background, your journey that led you to where you are today. Sure. Thank you very much for having me, Christine. I'm, I'm really delighted to be with you today. So my background is as a physician. I came into medicine expecting to be um, an academic, which I was in the beginning, and I'm a radiologist doing MRI and did a lot of research early on in developing better techniques for um, imaging the cardiovascular system, for example. And I found myself pulled into increasing leadership positions at NYU. I was asked to be the chief scientific officer there and really thinking strategically about how we can accelerate research and go from bench to bedside. And when I was there leading that uh, part of the enterprise, I was really struck by the challenges, the sort of last mile challenges. We were able to make incredible discoveries in the research side. And yet at the same time, so many people who had high blood pressure were still not taking their 10 cent a day blood pressure pills. And that really perplexed me. And so from there, I had the opportunity to go to the University of Utah to lead the healthcare system there which was really a remarkable opportunity. It was one of the, and is one of the highest performing academic medical systems in the country in terms of quality and safety, and a very entrepreneurial, very innovative and open-minded academic medical system. And so I had the great fortune of leading that system for six years, a number of interesting initiatives, whether it was focusing on how we could improve patient satisfaction or looking at 
actually measuring the costs of care to try to tackle some of the challenges of rising healthcare costs and realizing that most of us who practice medicine don't actually know what it costs um, to, to deliver that care. And so it's not, no surprise that costs are out of control when the people who are actually responsible don't know their costs. So we did a lot of interesting things at the University of Utah. After six years there, I had a year sabbatical, wrote a book about fixing healthcare. It's called The Long Fix and had a chance to really reflect on all the lessons that I had gathered across the country, across the world even, and distilled those into kind of an overall idea about how we could really improve healthcare in this country. And that was when I was introduced to the leaders of Verily. And Verily, for those of your listeners who may not know, is an alphabet company. It's a sister company to Google, purpose-built to focus on healthcare and life sciences. And when I met the leaders at Verily, I basically said, you know, I'm not really a tech person. I'm a healthcare person. Uh, I don't really know if I'm the perfect candidate for you here. But the response was simply, no, we want to fix healthcare. And so why don't you just come and do what's in your book? Let, let's fix healthcare together. And that's what brought me to Verily. Well, that's great. So you mentioned a few things that piqued my my interest. Uh, when you were at NYU, you said your patient is not taking given their, you know, uh, 10 cents medication. And then somehow that was something that put on your database. That's a problem. Uh, and then when you went to Utah, you, you know, you say that there's a lot more innovative. How is it different? And why is that different? Like in what you experienced in NYU versus in Utah? Well, I think NYU was also a very innovative place. When I was at NYU, I was really struck by the the incredible advances that are made there. So um, what, what my role there, though, was really to focus on advancing research. Mm-hmm. And when I moved to the University of Utah, my responsibility became managing a population of people. How do we actually improve the health of the communities that we serve across the state of Utah and Idaho and Wyoming? Because, you know, it, it became a much broader set of responsibilities. And What I discovered, one of the things that I discovered, even when I was at NYU, we were already doing this, but which we really had to, um, we really had to be much more creative, even I would say in Utah, because we have fewer people to support a very broad population spread out over large distances. So we had to be even more resourceful. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that happened there, which I think really made a difference was we did a lot more collaborating across the entire community. And what I mean by that, for example, let me tell you the story about one program that was already launched before I even got there by students, okay, by students. This program was an innovation program called Bench to Bedside. And students who had been undergraduates who are now in the medical school said, we want to be part of this new generation, create innovations to try to improve healthcare. How can we do that best? Well, we need to partner with some students or people who are understand engineering and technology. Okay, so they got together and then they said, well, you know what? We need people who can really build a business plan. Like, we can do it, but is it really going to have a business plan? So they created a competition, bench to bedside competition, which was team-based. Every team had students from health sciences, from the business school, and from engineering. And we actually, my job as the dean of the medical school at the time and the CEO of the health system was simply to support this program and expand it. Uh, but we actually had an end-of-the-year competition. We had venture capital, all kinds of uh, various investors and people come and judge. And 
a number of these projects have actually gone on to commercialization. Many of them were were ideas that uh, actually faculty had, but they didn't really have the resources to sort of bring them uh, to, to reality. And these students really drove those forward. That kind of energy around innovation, I feel it's, it's very, uh, it, it's not limited to, but it is something that you kind of associated with more the Western side. You know, it's sort of mm-hmm. like Silicon Valley, Silicon Slopes, you know, in Utah. And I think that was really, really powerful. And that's really great. It's always really rewarding when you see something from the very beginning and then it become something bigger and make an impact. And I'm just curious, being at university uh, setting we are, where we are in, is that how do you, you know, how do you, because I think sometimes in a large medical center and having to bring all that innovation within, it can be very complicated. And how do you, overcome that hump to kind of convince everybody that this is the right way to tackle a lot of the challenges that healthcare have? Well, one of the talks that I had to give once was to the National Academy of Medicine, where I was asked to think about the future of academic medicine. So I thought, well, where better to go than to ask the future? So I convened a group of medical students and then nursing students and some College of Health students. And I asked them, you know, where do you think the future of healthcare is going? And as I talked to them, I came to this realization, sort of an epiphany that was um, really sort of shocked me that most of these students who were born in the 1990s had come of age uh, after Hillary Clinton had been talking about healthcare reform, they grew up thinking that healthcare needed to be reformed. That's not how I grew up, right? So they grew up thinking there's going to be change. I remember asking them, "How many of you remember life before Google?" Maybe there were two hands up. <laughs> and then I actually asked them, "How many of you all think Mark Zuckerberg is 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 old?" And actually, two thirds of the people raised their hand, you know, because he was in his thirties, and they're only in their twenties. It's all relative, you know. And so, at that point, I, I had this kind of epiphany, which is that there's so much energy in this generation. They see so much potential. They grew up, you know. This is the internet generation. They they grew up, you know. Any question that you have is just at your fingertips. And they've seen people like Zuckerberg and so many others, you know, really uh, live out that dream and, and impact billions of people in a very short time. And so if we, uh, those of us who are sort of running these institutions, could just simply step aside a little bit and leave enough room for them to really come together, build on that energy, build across disciplines like engineering and video gaming and data science, all, many of these fields didn't even exist when I was young mm-hmm. and let them really kind of tackle these problems. I think it's, it's that energy and that level of creativity is exactly what we need to tackle the big problems in healthcare. That's right. So is this program still running? I'm just really curious. Yeah. I believe it is. I believe it is. Yes, absolutely. And we we actually modified as the dean of the medical school, you know, we had these requirements for senior students to do research projects and we modified our rules to allow an innovation project to count as their capstone project mm-hmm. just to support that. No, oh, that, that's great. So after being in academia, you said like, like any good academia, I guess, like, I'm going to go write a book. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so tell me more about like what, what 
what are the key takeaway that you learn from the process of writing that book that you think like how to fix healthcare, why their approach is seems to be the right way? That's a great question, Christine. You know, the, the book, the audience that I had in mind for my book were the medical students that I used to lecture to, people who are really new to medicine and healthcare. And, and then I've come to realize that it's actually been very useful also for people like in the tech sector who are very interested in getting into healthcare, but who might have backgrounds that are outside. And the, the, the takeaways that I try to share in the book are, there's really three. One is that we have so much, we have so much to learn from other businesses that we can bring to bear on healthcare. So I learned this a little bit when I was doing my own MBA and uh, learning from colleagues from across the industry, but whether it's improved uh, operations, enabling our clinics to run on time, <laughs> user-centered design. We really lack user-centered design in healthcare. You know, you go into any healthcare system, you realize we, we do not focus on patients as the user or even clinicians. They're not very user-centered design friendly for clinicians either. Um, all kinds of lessons we can learn from other businesses. I think that's one. Um, the second one, and probably the most important one, is that fundamentally our business model for healthcare is really flawed, that we are mostly a fee-for-service, for-profit fee-for-service business model that creates a, kind of a real um, conflict between patients, their clinicians, and the people who are paying the bills, the insurance companies. You know, it's sort of a zero sum. If the insurance company pays the doctor, they make less money. If the doctor doesn't get paid, they make less money. So there's kind of a tension. And then when they can't resolve it, they get surprise billing over to the patient. So the patient loses too. So this business model doesn't really work. And so I call out some really great examples, such as Medicare Advantage, which is this new program within Medicare. It's actually not that new anymore, but it's mm -hmm. very rapidly growing and it's a different model where actually the, the doctors are rewarded for the patients having better outcomes and everybody wins. So I talk a little bit about that. So the business plan, business model really has to change. And then the third point that I try to make is that um, we really have to find the right balance between the public and private sector in the way in which we manage healthcare in this country. We are really the only developed nation or the only high-income nation in the country that does not provide universal health care at least at a basic level to everyone. And even though the data show that if we do that, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, that basic level of healthcare is really necessary to have a thriving population and, and to prevent the heart attacks and the strokes with that 10 cent um, a day pill. You know, we really have to make that investment for everybody. So those are the three takeaways. Yeah, no, it's like, I'm totally... Uh on it when you, you know you can see I'm nodding when you talk about learning from other business I think healthcare is the only one that uh if as a patient you have to wait for an hour that seems to be okay <laughs> if you go under other places probably people will live it this podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. 
If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. So translating to, you know, from all your lessons learned, like try to, these are the three ways that you think that the best way to fix healthcare. And then when you join uh, Verily, how, how is that? Help us connect the dot, like what Verily is interested in doing and then in terms of what you learn from um, the three different ways that can help fix the healthcare challenges that we have. Sure, sure. That's a great question. So in this, in this new business model of healthcare where we actually can create almost like a team approach between the patient the clinician and who, whoever's paying, whether it's Medicare or the, the government or say your employer or the insurance company who's having to pay. Um, in order for that to work, we really need a new set of tools to help each, each group really improve their health. And at Verily, within the health platforms, we have um, several businesses that really, really advance that. So for example, one of our businesses is called Onduo. It's a digital health platform to help people with chronic conditions really manage, manage those conditions more effectively. So, for example, if somebody has type 2 diabetes, they need to manage their blood sugars through their diet and exercise and, and sleep, for example, and maybe medications. So the way the app works is you, have, uh, you can use a, uh, a continuous glucose monitor so instead of having to prick your finger multiple times a day, you use one of these, what we call CGMs, continuous glucose monitors. You put it on your arm or your abdomen and it measures your blood sugars 24 seven. So you don't have to prick multiple times. It's got a Bluetooth chip in it, which transmits your blood sugar measurement to your phone where the app is. And so now you can actually see your blood sugar tracings because it's your phone. You can take pictures of your meals and snacks. And for the first time, people are actually able to make this visual association between what they're eating and how they're exercising, everything else, and what it's doing to their blood sugars. And it's incredibly transformative because what we now realize, which we didn't know back when I was in medical school, is that everybody's biology really is very different. And so we may, you and I may eat the same meal, but what our blood sugars do afterwards is actually going to be very different, most likely. So it's a personalized experience. You can layer some artificial intelligence on that to, to help identify some of these patterns. Um, there's telehealth, so you can chat with a coach. You can video conference, for example. So that's one of the businesses in uh, Verily and in Verily Health Platforms that I think is really emblematic of how technology, how engaging people and using the data to drive some behavior change and enable people to kind of really live the healthy lives that they want to live is so, um, could be so high impact in terms of improving health and tackling some of these problems that I write about. So I'm always curious um, about, you know, Verily is, um, so you did on Duo, I think there's another, another one that is in the neuromodulation, I'm thinking, the what's not now called start with the GF, I think. Galvani. Galvani. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, tell us a lot more about is that part of the health pl- healthcare platform or how does it work? Um, Galvani is not a, in the health platform. So the health platforms um, is really focused on, um, on Duo, on the digital health program. Uh, we have um, 
a substance use disorder nonprofit that we manage in Dayton, Ohio, called 115, which is all about helping people with addiction, um, which is a really, really fascinating program. And you can imagine that it was built on telehealth before the COVID pandemic, but when the pandemic hit, really having telehealth, telepsychiatry access for people um, struggling with um, substance use disorders was really, really transformative. Can you tell us more about that? Like, how does it work with with that 115? Sure. 115, it's a nonprofit that Verily is one of the supporters of. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but we helped to build the technology that's used there. And it's in Dayton, Ohio, and in partnership with a number of different groups, including local health systems. And basically, our mission there is to uh, think very holistically about supporting the recovery from substance use disorders. And it includes, in partnership again with local systems, it includes access to a crisis stabilization unit and an inpatient facility in one of our partner hospitals, as well as on our own campus, an outpatient clinic and a residential facility. And so it's it's really a, a program that we've built in close partnership with the community to, um, to tackle really one, one of the most pressing issues I think that's, that's facing our society right now and just exacerbated by the COVID pandemic. Yeah, so I mean, it's in Ohio. Oh. Google, uh, well, where we all started is in Silicon Valley. I'm just being very selfish here. How scalable is that 115? Is there, because uh, when I think about Google doing anything, it's more trying to go big, right? And so uh, is this something that is scalable? Is it going to be uh, something that we can see all over the country? How, what is that? Uh, is there any plan for that? That's a, that's a great question. So we've really been building the model and building the foundations for this program in the last uh, year and a half or two years, and we we would we were very interested in how the lessons you know of what we've been doing can benefit others. So um, and right now we've really just been building out this program and trying to make it as successful as possible, working with the folks in Ohio. Ohio Medicaid, for example, to scale to um, increase the number of sites, for example, that can participate in our program. So we're taking the first steps Mm -hmm. and and then we'll see how that goes. So what are the first few lessons learned that you found out about trying to do this, uh, addressing, um, helping the community that has uh, addiction problem? Mm. I mean, it seems like everybody's talking about at least being in San Francisco with the homeless you know, the addiction problem, everybody said, well, it's not a problem with the homeless, it's a problem with the addiction. It's almost like, it's mental health, not the gun. So it's, you know, just that. that's mm. So what are the things that you learn? Well, yeah, your, your point about mental health is very important. So I think that um, it, it's not some, just something that I've learned, but I think it's pretty clear that there are a lot of additional it's, it's not uncommon for people who have addictions to have other comorbidities, as we call it, to have other um, mental conditions such as depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, very common. So part of the treatment is really that more holistic approach to really solving or, or addressing some of the underlying conditions 
in addition to in addition to the addiction. I think that's one. I think we've been learning a lot about how to really engage people. Um, often people are referred to addiction programs, but no, aren't necessarily able to um, to start them or to follow through and continue with those programs. So we've been learning a lot about how to how to support that, including um, peer counseling, for example, is very important there. And then the tele tele side of it, I think, is is incredibly valuable. So just the ability to access care remotely through your phone, for example, or through a tablet um, is, you know, is, is that, that ability to access, particularly in this condition is really vitally important. Do you see some similarities like you're, you know, going back to what you said that your patient don't even want to take that 10 cents medication no, I sometimes make that to you and say, oh, you know, I don't feel like to. Is that similar? Like, you know, there's a similar challenge that people with addiction to con- get them continue engagement. Is that is there a commonality in there on how the human psychology is? If so, what is that? And what do you think that's the best way to overcome that or to help make that better? That is such a profound question in healthcare, because I think that we were just having a conversation about this earlier today, which is this, this, if taking a step back, the overall question of how do we really engage people in their health? It's really, it's a profound question because most of us just want to be healthy. We don't actually want to think about healthcare that much, right? And uh, there's a, a story that I, I write about in the book. There's a, a kind of a way of thinking that I borrowed from the folks at this Institute for Healthcare Improvement, IHI, which is this idea of co-producing health, which I really like. And the idea came about, it was actually proposed by uh, an economist, Victor Fuchs, who wrote a paper in the 1960s, really, about the shifting U.S. economy, moving from a manufacturing economy to a service-based economy, he pointed out that in a manufacturing economy, we don't have much of a relationship as a consumer with the manufacturer. You know, we just drive the car off the lot, for example, um, buy a pair of jeans. You know, we don't engage with the manufacturer. But in a service economy, we do work together with that service. And one really good example is in the financial sector where you see, you know, in the, in the old days, we would drive to the branch, we'd have to ask the teller for a deposit and so on. And now in the digital world, literally we co-produce our financial health together. We don't rely on the bankers to do that. We get the information that we need. We can balance, we can uh, deposit checks, we can get a loan online. And so I think the question around engagement is really, how do we help people co-produce their own health? How do we give them the tools so that they can they can be healthy without being uh, in a way that is consistent with their own goals? So, for example, when it comes to managing diabetes, you know, some people or managing high blood pressure, let's say something that you don't even feel like you're really that sick, right? So, some people are really motivated um, because they, uh, you know, their friends are sort of their peers are actually um, kind of motivating to them. Some people are motivated because their spouse or their partner tells them they've got to take the pill. <laughs> Others because, you know, maybe maybe a grandparent just recently died or a parent or somebody had a, you know, mm-hmm. had a stroke or something. 
So people are motivated in different ways. And so how we engage them in a way that's meaningful to them and gets them through their goals and defining it that way, I think is actually really critical. And it's part of really the mindset that I see in this digital health space. And how is that, uh, what is, uh, what do you think very least role is going to be uh, in this space with using the technology So in Verily, we, we really talk about bringing the promise of precision health to everyone every day. And there's a lot to unpack in that very simple phrase, but a couple of key things to draw out. One is the recognition that everybody is really that precision health piece, that we are all unique, not only in terms of our biology and our genetics, but in terms of our social determinants our, our social situation and in the terms of what's important to us, how we actually engage in health ourselves. And the more that our products are able to really understand that and recognize that, um, the more effective they're going to be. And then really bringing that promise of precision health to everyone every day, increasing access to care and ensuring that that access is equitable, you know, making sure that we are reducing health disparities through our work uh, is also vitally important. So those are some of the ways in which we're thinking about it. Last question before I let you go. Uh, okay. So Verily, is that mean somebody in Verily right now just like you know, busy coding, thinking about all the different problems, or are you guys looking more innovation from the outside and then equip them with a lot of the Verily resources and make them big? I mean, Ondua is not a good example, but I'm just thinking about your 115. Is that is that how you guys think about the innovation from the inside or more partnership or get innovation from the outside and then give it a big steroid boost? I'd say there's a pro- probably a, a little bit of all of those. So, you know, we have within Verily... I think we have a terrific collection of uh, people who have very strong healthcare, very strong tech, and actually a wide range of business backgrounds. So from within Verily, we have some ideas of our own. Most of what we do on the healthcare delivery side and the health platforms is in partnership with other, other systems. So when as we are building our various solutions, there's a very strong focus on um, whether we're meeting the needs of what our, our customers, our partners uh, see as the most pressing issues. And in particular, working with communities, diverse communities, so that we are sure that the kinds of products that we're building really reflect the wide range of constituents that we want to serve in healthcare. That's actually really, really key since everything we do is in partnership um, with others. So I think those are some of the things that, those are some of the ways in which we think about innovation. Um, but it's, it, as you know, Christine, it takes all kinds of innovation to solve the problems that we're working on. Yeah, no, that, that's uh, definitely, um, I wish it's simple, isn't it? Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> so, but, but thank you so much. Thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. It's been great to be with you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.